More and more entrepreneurs, myself included, are launching with direct-to-consumer business models. And for good reason, it's never been easier. But just because you can start easily doesn't mean running and scaling that business will be. Today, I'm talking with Fazari Bikes founder Chris Washburn about how they're selling high-ticket items sight unseen by building trust with customers, how they deal with inventory forecasting, production, and all the other things you might not be thinking about when you're just focused on launching your company. Chris shares how they set their pricing, which is a tricky subject when you're competing against established brands with a strong retail presence, and many more of the challenges and lessons he's learned in 12 years of building a business. If you're running a direct-to-consumer company, you're going to love this episode. by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. All right, Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. You started Fazari Bicycles in 2006, which is actually quite a bit earlier than I thought. I'm kind of curious, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of how you built this business, like what made you want to start a bike brand, and especially a direct-to-consumer bike brand before that was kind of a, a popular thing to do in the U.S.? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I uh, obviously have always been into biking, but um, and it's been a passion of mine, but you know, to say that you're going to start a bike company is like saying... I like golf, so I'm going to start a golf company, right. you know, um, there was a little bit more to it. Um, you know, my, my background has been very entrepreneurial. I've, I've done some things in the bike industry already. And so I just saw a niche and I saw an opportunity, something that hadn't really been filled that well, at, at least in my opinion. And so, um, that's when we launched it and we've just been growing every year. Because 2006 was before a lot of momentum got behind the direct-to-consumer thing. Nowadays, yeah. and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, like now more and more brands are doing that. Yeah. But like what was that hole that you saw that needed to be filled for doing a direct-consumer bike brand? Well, and, and I don't know if it was as much as a hole as I, I saw an opportunity for some bikes that what we wanted to do when we first started Fazari is, is, um, is, is um, do a little bit. It started with really about quality. Um, we wanted to, at the first and foremost, we said, look, we want to build great bikes, but we want to sell them at great values. And we want to be able to have um, some level of customization. And so, quite frankly, initially, um, when we started it, we approached quite a few dealers and we were saying, this is you know, what we want to do. And I, I had you know, a lot of dealer friends, but they kind of looked at me and was like, oh man, that's a lot of work. You know, There's a lot of customization involved I mean really meaning having to like assemble on demand sort of because yeah. that's really the only way to customize because you know most mass-produced bikes they come out of the factory to an assembly plant they get all the 
components, you know, the drivetrain and everything, it's specced way in advance of before it ever shows yeah. up in a yeah. box yeah. at the brand's warehouse in the U.S. or the Europe yeah. or wherever. And, yeah, so when you build on demand, you can put whichever fork you want, whichever shock yeah. you want, whichever wheels, tires, components, everything. <laughs> well, we didn't even start at that level to begin with. We, I mean, that's where we've evolved, obviously. But in the beginning, it was just, hey, let us do custom fitting for the individual. Let, you know, let us, um, I mean, it might be the same bar, you know, same model of the bar or stem or seat post or, or, or whatever it was. But let's let's do some customizations on it, and I, it even got to the point of you know where we were saying, you know they have these women's specific bikes, but who's to say what's a who you know who identifies what is a woman out yeah. there? It's kind of like you know even in this, I mean there can be a five foot eight woman, or a five foot two or a you know five foot ten, just like there's different guys, and so we were about um, we've always been about the customization of the fit. And so when you say fit, you mean like different stem length, different handlebar width, yeah. you know, seat post height, setback, and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Okay. And so that's that's what the dealers were kind of looking at. I was like, oh, we don't want to stock all that inventory. And so, you know, we kind of, I, I, really, I looked at it and said, well, great. Then we're going to um, show you how we can do it. And I, I guess I secretly kind of hoped that, you know, yeah. hey, I'm going to show them how this is done. And we're going to get going on this. And then... They'll come back and they'll say, great, let's do it together. Um, really what happened was, is we found a niche and, and it's been really good. You know, we've, we've continued to grow and grow and grow. And, um, and so, yeah, to your point now, the customizations are a lot more. I mean, we, we will, we have a lot of bikes on our website that will certainly, um, that are what we call more stock builds or recommended builds, but you know, we'll build whatever a person wants. Right. So if they if they want a certain shock or fork or um, wheel set or you know cockpit or brakes or whatever it is, we'll certainly build it for them. Yeah, that's always actually surprised me from well before I started biking. You know, because I've been a cyclist forever too. Is that at least the bigger brands, you know, like Trek, Specialized, Giant, those guys who have pretty well established dealer networks couldn't just send along like a small box of different size stems i mean right. stem seems to be one of the biggest ones where just like a centimeter can make such a massive difference and like yeah. why not have your, give your dealers the ability to really get that person so dialed on their bike that they love it instead of like and eh, it's okay you know but yeah anyway well um, the, the the mantra kind of has always been sit on it does it feel good great you know and we take it beyond that i mean it really is i mean now we've done thousands upon thousands and thousands of fits and so um, you know, we know that quite frankly, we know what fits best for most people, but there are nuances in everything. I mean, certain people will want certain things. There are, there are people out there that just love long stems for whatever reason. I mean, you know, right. and, and so we'll, we'll cater to it if they want it. So cool. And you also mentioned wanting to do something that was a better value. And so I, price was always kind of one of the selling points for your brand. And I feel like to go direct to consumer, it almost, the expectation is that the product's going to be a little bit less expensive. Yeah. But was that, um, like, did you always want to compete on price? No. I mean, look, from the very beginning, we have always tried to be different. I mean, that was the reason, one of the reasons why we were, you know, we went direct. I mean, you're looking at it and you're saying, you go through a dealer network and you say, how on earth am I going to compete with um, 
brands, uh, you know, what kind of shelf space am I going to get? I mean, am I going to be just put over in a corner and, and, you know, they're swamped with the big brands all over the place. So how do we distinguish ourselves? How do we differentiate ourselves? And so we've always been about differentiation. Right. Um, and so, you know, that's gone to not only the, the fit, as we've talked about, but certainly the value. Um, I mean, one of my opinions has always been, I mean, I love great, pro- great quality products, but at a certain level, how are you, you know, we're, we're, you know, as an industry, we may be pricing ourselves out of a lot of, of um, areas where we can grow, you know, because we're getting so expensive in certain areas. And so we try to pass that value on where we can. Right. And I think we don't see this as much in the bike industry, but in a lot of other industries, you, you mentioned competing for shelf space and in so many things, if you wanted to get into a big box store or a department store or a grocery store, you not are not only are competing for that shelf space, you ha- you're having to pay for that shelf space yeah. and the prices that you pay can become obscenely expensive and competitive when you're competing against like a Coca-Cola or a General Mills or something like that who are paying sometimes like $10,000 per store to own a certain amount of shelf space. So it's, yeah, it's it's getting tougher and tougher to do retail. And then like you mentioned too, like retailers don't want to carry all this stuff anymore because it's expensive. And at least for bike shops, and I think a lot of other specialty retailers now are feeling that sting of online sales and so they're they're even retrenching even more. They want to carry less and less and less, and it's yeah. so yeah. You're kind of like, you know, there's another side to it too, um, and and I think everybody may look at it and say, oh my gosh, you know, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence with, you know, direct is is the way to go, and I certainly believe it, but it is hard to uh, whatever you do, it's hard to compete. You have to. You have to deliver. We've kind of, in many respects, we joke about this because, um, you know, some of these big brands, they have a great, they don't have to do all of the, um, the um, you know, the selling uh, to the customer directly. They don't have to do the, the support, all of those things. They can, but we have, for better or for worse, we've had to choose our our, um, you know, we've made our bed, we've, we've created the bed, and we've had to service the bed, you know. So, I mean, we're, we're with concept, design, um, manufacturing, um, sale, marketing, sales, and then support. And so it, it's um, at every point along the way, we've got to be good. We've got to be great or we're not going to succeed. Yeah, because you have to convince the people to try your product. Right. Mostly sight unseen. Right. Which, whereas... And, and, to elaborate a little bit on what you said, you know, whereas the other brands can rely, don't have to do all that selling themselves, is I guess because they can rely on their dealer network right. to have that product in front of people and explain it and sell it yeah. for them. Uh, how did you set your prices? Like when you figured out, okay, we we want to be less, we don't need to worry about building in this distributor margin or, or retail margin. How did you decide, you know, apples to apples for a bike that would normally cost in a store, say five grand, how did you decide what your comparable model would cost? Well, I mean, on any pricing, if, if you try to build from the bottom up, you're going to lose. We have to start from the top down. And what do you mean by that? So, meaning uh, you, you start to, you know, figure out your costs of things and then build them up and then add a margin onto it, um, you're, you're going to lose. Um, what you really have to do is start with the, what's the price that the market will bear? What do you think it will bear? And then you back into that, um, your costs and you see if you can actually make a profit at it. And so, um, 
as, as we get out and we get rolling on this, I mean, and, you know, as we started initially, um, you know, we would, we would look at uh, pricing and different things. And, and naturally, in the beginning, we looked at it and said, you know, we don't have as strong of a brand as some, as some of these big ones. How are we going to draw somebody over from uh, what other big brand is out there? And so, you know, certainly price was a, a weapon that we tried to use. But as our brand has become more and more established and we've gotten a very loyal following, um, we, that is certainly one of our you know, weapons in our, um, in our arsenal, but we, we look at other things too. I mean, as I said in the beginning, it was quality is, is fundamentally the number one thing that we'll compete on. And, and, um, and that kind of goes back to how we build um, all of our bikes. I mean, we try to build to higher standards um, that you know, some of the latest bikes that we've been doing, for example, is we'll build to 130% of ISO standard. And, and quite frankly, that's because, you know, it's one of the things that we've tried to compete on is saying we have lifetime warranties on, on everything. And, and I don't want to have to deal with the bikes right. breaking. So, yeah, selfishly, there's, there's that side of it. Build it right in the first place so we don't have to deal with it. But, um, you know, it also will translate into brand equity because people will look at it and say, you know, hey, they build quality products. Yeah, on the flip side, in this day and age, especially with social media, is like if you didn't and something broke and a few of them broke, right. it would it could be a very few out of a lot, but yeah. the word will spread way too fast about yeah. the few that broke. Um, well, So I want to start, let's say you have a $5, or you're looking at what is a $5,000 bike in the stores. How do you... Um, you said you kind of figure out what the market will bear. Well, how do you come at that number? Do you think, okay, well, like, I think people would rather pay four grand for that bike. I mean, is it just kind of like a gut feel, like what you want to set your price at to compare? Because I know like on your website, you used to have like, you know, bike A, mm -hmm. and it would say MSRP, eight grand, our price, fifty four ninety nine or something like right. that. Which yeah. So you were kind of like saying what comparable bikes <laughs> would sell for right. to let people realize what a deal they were getting. But how do you come up with that number? Like, is there any math or is it just total? You know, and it's really funny because that's exactly how we used to do it. And we actually changed that out about a year ago and we don't do that anymore. Um, and it really was, I think it was something that we started. Well, the reason we began is certainly we were trying to the, the, compete on price uh, as much as anything. And so we would say, here, here's a, what, if we sold it through a dealer network, what we'd have to sell it for. And here's what we can sell it for to you. Um, more and more, we have gone away from that and we've taken it off of the website. Um, we, we look at the price of the product and what the total package is. And so now more and more, we equate value with so much more than just price alone. Um, it's going to be quality. It's going to be the custom fit. It's going to be the guarantee. It's going to be the warranty. It's going to be the ride, you know, the engineering. And as we build that, um, that, uh, you know, we, we will price it. Certainly we'll try to compete. We still compete on price, but, um, it, it's a lot of experience also. Mm -hmm. I mean, there have been certain products that maybe we have priced, too high in retrospect, but there are other products that we have definitely priced too low because mm -hmm. we sell out of them too quickly. And so it's a little bit of a game. At the end of the day, you know, I'm passionate about bikes. I love this industry, um, but we have to make money. I have to pay my employees. We have to, 
we, we want to be able to provide a business that people know that they're going to be able to, you know, if a bike needs to be warranted or, you know, that the business is going to be around in 10 years or 20 years or whatever. Right. So if you, I, I don't want to like sound like I'm just beating this question to death, but I'm trying to figure out like, have you come up with a magic like percent off that makes your offering attractive? Like that's what I'm trying to get. At. Like if somebody's trying to launch a direct to consumer business, and they're thinking, well, like how much of a discount off of normal MSRP do I need to give to get that customer to commit and buy? There's no magic number. Um, you know, in the past, maybe there was. I mean, we, you know, we would say, you know, hey, our bikes, bikes are 30 to 50% cheaper. But um, I don't look at it that way, honestly. That's not to say that we don't do competitive research. I mean, we'll look into a, a market and we'll say, what are the bikes going for in this market? And can we compete in here and actually make money in here? And there's a lot of markets that we have said, we're not going in. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is just not... Why? What were some core. of those signals that you got that said, nah, this isn't going to work for us? Well, some of the biggest ones I think that we have learned is um, for us, we've been able to dovetail a lot of our products. And so we're able to concentrate our marketing dollars. So when I say dovetail, I mean like um, we, we launch a mountain bike at you know a one of our flagship mountain bikes and we'll have a cascade of bikes underneath it that kind of draft underneath the marketing of that product. Um, and so um, that works great. But if we do something outside of our kind of our expertise zone and we maybe only have one product out there, oh my gosh, we're having to spend so much money just to support a, a you know, that on its own. It's, it's, I kind of like to look at it as a Peloton, you know, you're, you've got, you got one, um, that's out there breaking the wind and you got a few of them behind that are drafting off of it. And so that has certainly worked for us. Um, we, and it's also helps, I think, um, really in focus for the, for, uh, the brand too. I mean, we do have a wide product range. I mean, we certainly sell both road and mountain bikes. Um, but we don't get into tandems or we don't get into, you know, um, there's, there's so many niches that um, honestly look like landmines for us. And they're so <laughs> tempting to go into. There's a lot of times that we'll look at that and we'll say, oh my gosh, we could go in there and do so well at that. And we kind of, uh, kind of a rule of thumb is in our business is we say, okay, what product are you going to kill? If we go into that, which of the current products are we going to kill? Um, it helps us to keep the focus a little bit more. Hmm. Cool. So I imagine one of the challenges with a direct-to-consumer brand, particularly when you were starting, but you know even now, is that because it's less expensive, you have to convince the potential customer that the quality is still just as yeah. high. Like, is that how did you guys overcome that? Well, that's a very good question, and in fact, that can also be the Achilles' heel. Sometimes you know you price it too low, and people look at it like, "Are you kidding? What's the deal with this?" Yeah. There's got to be something some, you're not telling me, right? Yeah, there's something you're not telling me, and we've had that before. Um, we're still committed to value, but we add a lot more to the value too, I think. And so one of the ways that we'll get around that is, is we do, you know, obviously lifetime warranties. Another one that we started last year, um, is the 30 day love it or return it. And it literally is take it, write it. And if you don't love it, you can return it and we'll even pay the return shipping. And that is, a uh, 
you know, as you as you think about that, it kind of gives you a pit in your stomach because you start thinking, <laughs> "What am I going to do with these bikes and they come back?" Yeah, but you know, I think what what really we had it's funny we had a big marketing meeting on this with with um, a lot of the employees and a lot of them internally were saying, "Wait, we you know we can't do that. That's gonna there's what what on earth you know somebody's going to abuse this or somebody's going to you know." Um, uh, take advantage of us. And the way I look at it is, you know what, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We believe these bikes, we have two thirds of our business is repeat referral business. So we have a very loyal following. You know, what, what's there to lose? And, and it's not to say that, you know, I mean, it's a hard thing to do. I could see there's a lot of places where we could fail on that. And that goes back to the part of Man, we got to be executing on every single level. All right. Were you able to measure any bump in sales when you made the announcement? Or yeah. Everybody started offering that. Really? Yeah, we did. We had a huge bump in sales, and surprisingly, we've had no change in returns. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, what are some of the other challenges that you've had as a direct consumer brand? I, I think the biggest one is the um, we don't get the opportunity. To interface with a lot of times with the customer directly. When I say we do actually, ironically, get to interface very directly with the customer as opposed to another, um, say, another manufacturer, but we don't get to interface many times the way a dealer would. And so it's um, very much a um, um, we, we really have two types of customers, as I say. We have one customer that's never heard about us, and <clears throat> they spend tons of time researching us. They call in on the phones a lot of times. They really, really do their homework. And um, so we probably spend a lot more dollars on that customer in, in terms of marketing dollars. But we, um, in the end, if they buy from us, we usually find that they'll sell four to five more bikes for us. And mm -hmm. those are usually more just, hey, my friend told me about this and um, it's a great bike. I've, I've seen it and I want to buy it. So. If you spread that over, um, our, our costs become a lot less for right. that group of, of customers that have just bought from us. Cool. And you guys do some demo events. You know, like yeah. you, you said, you're doing Outer Bike, which is a big yeah. consumer demo thing. How, even though that's like a great way to get in front of people, it's hard to scale something like that yeah. because maybe you see a couple hundred people, but you've probably right. got, you know, hopefully tens of thousands of customers. Like, right. do you get real value out of Demoing it face-to-face? -face. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that I wish we could scale a lot more. Um, yeah, it's a very expensive way to do business right. um, because you're, you know, you're, 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 you've got a lot of vehicles, you've got staff, you've got um, products that are getting used and everything else, but the hands-on on the product really does make a lot of difference. And actually, going back to what I just said is... We do have a demo program. It's 30 days. Right. You know, people can demo it wherever, you know, and, and um, they, you know, it's so they'll, they can write it. They can write it on their own trails and, and demo it. But these particular demo events do work well. In fact, that's um, for us. It's just a chance for us to get in front of the customer. They can see us. They can interact with us. They can see, oh, yeah, th those are the guys behind Fazari. They're, you know. 
Right. Not some kind of goblin or ghost <laughs> or whatever, you know. Right. They're, not a they're... Chinese trading company. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So you guys have a relatively high ticket item for what I would consider a lot of direct-to-consumer stuff. You know, say, let's for simplicity, you know, $2,000, $8,000 is your product range. Do you think that there's advantages or disadvantages you have using this business model that may or may not apply to somebody selling like, you know, a, a 10 to $50 type thing? You know, um, I think the the biggest issue between our product and say somebody else's is it's what everybody would think. I mean, sometimes I scratch my head myself and say, holy cow, somebody's buying a $5,000 bike from us online and they've never even seen it. And I think internally for us, that's a really, that's a huge hurdle for us. We, we I, I hope we never take that for granted that somebody has put that much trust in us that they're willing to you know to buy something now we do everything we can to lower that hurdle with this love it or return it or with our uh, you know guarantee or with the you know the referrals but but at the end of the day they're still doing that and so um that is it there you know it's it's a big deal versus um a 50 dollar item i mean yeah. we can uh, it, there's a huge difference i mean just think about it i mean how many people are going to just click out of uh, emotion on a $50 item versus a $5,000 item? Right. You've got to think about it. So have you done uh, follow-up surveys with these people to figure out, like, oh, yeah. what was it? Like, what made them go ahead and do it without calling you first and talking to you and forming some kind of relationship? Like, what were some of the drivers that made them feel okay buying from you? Yeah. Um, we do. We're a very data-driven company. In fact, we, we do a lot of surveys that way. But um, principally, it's um, it, it really is that there's no gotcha points. Um, and I think that's, you know, as we talked about before, where people were saying, wait, this is too good to be true. What's going on? You know, there's got to be some issue on this. It's to just assure them that, hey, there we're... There's nothing crazy going on here. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's Do you think it that it was like, were they just reading that story on your website and they said, yeah, okay, you know, sounds legit. Or was it that they read like third party reviews of your product or yeah. like, what do you think was the thing that instilled the most confidence in them? Well, I'll give you one example that we were just looking at. There was a customer that um, visited our website and this is just data. We don't know who the customer was necessarily, but... They visited our website 52 times, <laughs> and um, this was over a course of, of um, about two and a half months. And they came back from many different areas um, that we, you know, came into our website from many different ways right. that we were able to look at that and say, holy smokes, this person has really, and I don't know, I don't know necessarily where they had gone from our site, you know, what other sites they had gone to, but they'd certainly come back again and again, and they were visiting different points on the website. Um, do you publish customer reviews on your website? Oh, yeah. Is that, um, do you check, like, the traffic? Like, can you tell if people are reading those? Yeah, 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 we do. And that is, uh, that is one of the biggest. It's a third-party reviews are also a big one. And, um, and um, in fact, those are some of the biggest drivers. Um, the the twenty three point custom setup that we do that we talked about earlier is a huge driver. Um, in fact, I think that's one of the biggest. Um, a lot of people really like the fact that they can get their bike custom fit or, or they can have a bike totally custom built. 
and, right. and so that's that's a big driver. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, there's another, and by far and away, probably one of the biggest is still just is just um, an assurance from somebody else, just a reference. So, how has your business evolved over the past fourteen years? I'm trying to do math. Twelve, quick, twelve years. Thank yeah. you. What are some of the lessons you've learned and the changes you've made to do better? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I think, um, you know, in the beginning, we we've always always focused on the uh, um, the product and the experience, but can't, I mean, we cannot underestimate how big that is. Um, we have doubled down on product and um, just, you know, uh, invested so much effort and energy um, into our engineering, our design, um, to, to build really what we consider the best products. Um, and then, um, but, you know, that's, that's one of the big areas. I think if you look at, you know, areas where we maybe have failed, you know, and I'm really glad that we haven't had a major fail. I mean, that's, that's what every um, business does not want to have. And, <laughs> right. you know, and, and that would, could be in our business, it could be in a, in a product failure or just a total miss on a product that we, you know, that we launched and it just didn't have any traction. Um, you know, we really haven't, haven't ever had that. We certainly had some products that haven't sold as well um, in the grand scheme of things. We have our bread and butter products that it's, you know, there are, there are money items that we just, um, you know, continue to sell. But you kind of pack around those, some of these others. I mean, you know, we, we look at our, one of our entry-level bikes, for example, and it's, we make no money on it. And every day we're always saying, why are we doing this? But it's really a little bit more of a, it's a gateway, you know, into this whole um, thing. And hopefully they'll, they'll have the experience and, and, um, and they'll get one of our other products. All right. Are there any dramatic changes you've had to make to your business model? No, um, not really. Um, we've tweaked a lot of things. Yeah. What are a couple of tweaks you made that had a measurable impact? Well, this lever to return it, for right. example, that was a huge one. Um, the t so back in the beginning, we didn't do 23 point custom setup right in the beginning. We just were shipping um, and um, shipping direct. And um, we spent more time on the phone helping people set up their bikes than um, really getting anything done. And so, you know, it was a huge change for us. We, um, <laughs> I mean, this is not the, you know, just put, put a bunch of parts in a, in a box and ship it to them and say, put it together. We had to make the, the uh, determination and it was a fundamental business change for us of, of saying, um, you know, well, so, I mean, we would, we would put the customized components in there, but we'd say to the customer, go ahead and assemble them yourself. Right. Um, and, and we spent more time trying to help them do that. So the next step was, is to say, dang, we got to build out a whole build program here. And so whatever the bike, wherever, whether it ships to Maine or Florida or California or whatever, it's a hundred percent built in our factory and test ridden and tested. And then we'll box it back up 
and ship it. And you know, we'll remove the the front wheel, the pedals, the seat, and the handlebars. All right, just to make it fit in the box. Just to basically. make it fit in the box. And it takes you just a couple minutes to put it back together. We include the tools, but that was that was a big business change because now we've got a whole staff of people that are building bikes. It's not just instead of answering phones. <laughs> yeah, <right>? exactly. <laughs> so so that was one of the big ones. I mean, you know, we uh, we're always thinking we've got a couple of you know, and I can't disclose, but we've got a couple of other really cool ones that'll be coming out soon. So. We're always looking to change stuff. Cool. So in the last couple of years, a lot of the major brands, the brands, you know, some of these legacy bike brands have gone consumer direct where their business model has always been built around the retail environment, going to a bike shop and buying it. Uh, their pricing is still, as far as I can tell, built on retail pricing. Like, how do you think they're going to do it? And, and is it becoming a competitive issue for you guys or is it no. just not an issue? Well, we don't look at that as direct. Um, that is, I mean, that's, that's fine that, that, that call it direct, but that's basically just putting on your website saying, Hey, you know, here's a, uh, you can buy the bike from us and then you know, pick it up at your dealer and that's, that's fine, but that's not our model. Our model is completely different. Right. Um, and so that doesn't bother us at all. Honestly, um, we have. We, from the beginning, have always looked, um, just stayed true to our principles and our core business, and we think there's a lot of runway. I don't, I don't, um, we don't bash anybody. We don't let them go their route. The bike business, anybody that's riding a bike, I think is awesome. But, and, and we'll certainly sell our product hard, but we have a unique way of doing it. And, and, um, and, and, and I don't know of anybody that's doing it the way we do it. All right. Just from a logistics standpoint, what are some of the things if somebody wants to start a direct consumer business of a physical product that the people order and they'll ship? Like, what are some of the things that you guys had to figure out, whether it's from a software side, a, a shipping or a warehousing side that weren't obvious at the beginning? Oh, yeah. Every step of the way. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we still joke about this today because there are so many, you know, I mean, sometimes I'll, I'll throw my hands up in the air and go, what the heck? I mean, this is, we're selling bikes. They were around before cars. Why is this, you know, some of these things, why are they so hard? But it's some, it's the model. It's the way that we're doing it. And, um, and, um, and we just have to invent a different way to do it. It's a different way of packaging, for example, or a different way of shipping or a different way of, of um, interacting. Um, we, we certainly, for example, even on phones, we have um, tried to make it to where, you know, anybody that calls in, they get, a, they get an answer right away if it's in business hours. Um, and, and that's been a hard thing to try to be able to scale that because uh, you'll see at any one point, I don't know what it is, if people, what they're drinking or what, but <laughs> we will have, you know, a million calls at one point of the day and then you have nothing in a couple hours later, you know, and it's just part of the business that you're working through. Have you tried, like, like built out like a frequently asked questions page or, or taken yeah. other measures to try and reduce the inbound calls oh, absolutely. and emails and stuff? Has, does and, that help? Oh, or do yeah. people just get, like, a lot of times I skip the FAQ pages because I don't want to dig through or have to search and find answers that aren't even relevant, I'll just be looking for a phone number. Yeah. 
Yeah. And you know what? We have not tried to hide our phone number. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's right on the, the very front page. But what we will do is if somebody does call in, for example, we'll, we'll, we, can, we can say, we'll be happy to help you. We can explain it right here. Or, hey, we got a link to a really cool video if you want to watch this. And, and, um, um, and it explains this, you know, very easily. Um, and a lot of times people will just say, oh, that's cool. That's great. Let me look at that and I'll call you back if there's any issues. So, yeah, we try to do help steps all along the way. Um, right. Was it? A, did you start off with like a written FAQ and then move to those video things because it is yeah. easier to show yeah. something? Yeah, we still. I mean, we still have written FAQs all over. Um, it's funny, you know. You have to place them in about four or five different places, <laughs> and they might be the same questions, but um, it's just how people access it, and that may be a fault of how we've designed things. But um, I think there's there's beauty in repetition and simplicity and trying to keep, you know, the same message. Right. Are there, what two or three things keep you up at night? It could be operational management, any kind of challenge you're throwing in this business. Well, right now what's keeping me up at night is not having enough product. Um, we, we still have to forecast ourselves. Um, I mean, we're just growing so fast and, and we can't, account for even wild forecasts on things and so that's um i mean that's a good thing and a bad thing i mean you know it's feast or famine it always seems like with me you know um you might be saying one day why didn't we why didn't we hit our our goal for today and the next day is why did we sell so many today you know um but it's been a good um course i think i think a lot of it is um this has not been, um, I, I, it was never meant to be a fly-by-night. It's meant to be a long-term business. And so really what keeps me up at night is, is um, how are we going to sustain this and, and continue to grow it at the pace that we're doing and continue to have the high customer satisfaction levels that we have. And so it's, it's building the infrastructure for that. Right. Um, because... We always say from the beginning, we're not selling bikes, we're selling experiences. And the experience is every interaction that they have with us from touching on our website to communicating with somebody on the phone or email or chat or um, interacting with us at, in person at one of these events, um, uh, you know, ex the uh, demo events that we might be doing. It's, it's somehow making sure that that message is the same all the way across the board. How do you do that? What kind of training do you provide? Or do you have you know, like a brand manual that you give to everybody yeah. and run them through it? Yeah, internally we have what's called a trail guide. It sounds a little cooler than a handbook or <laughs> yeah. something. And um, people I think will read it through a little bit more. It's got some little, you know, things with the trade, how we, you know, we, we talk about stuff is, you know, at this point on the trail you might encounter this. Well, here's some suggestions. and. At, you know, on this point of the trail, you might um, have this, here's what you need to do. And um, it keeps it light and fun, but it also keeps a consistent message um, that we're trying to do. And really what we're trying to do is empower people to make the decisions on their own. And it sounds really funny, but the guiding principle of our business is really do unto others. I mean, you know, if, if is that how you would treat if the customer, if it was your bike or how would you do it if it was yours? 
And sometimes it's a hard one to swallow in certain cases, but you know what? If we treat the customer right, it comes back in spades for us. Yeah, it's like teaching empathy, which yeah. sometimes can be hard to do, you yeah. know? But yeah. yeah, it pays off. And I think that's important for any brand, whether direct to consumer or not, right? Like that's, yeah. that's what a good brand is, is when you have a consistent message all the way across and, and top to bottom in terms of, you know, the people out there representing your brand, you know, from the phones to the emails to the events. Uh, I want to go back to forecasting real quick. Like, you know, you said you guys are still struggling to figure that one out. But like, what are like, what kind of guidelines do you have? Like, how do you guess? Because I, I don't even know where to go with the rest of that question. Like, what's so so? What's let me process? give you an example. Um, we can forecast absolutely perfectly on everything. We can submit all the forecasts, but you know, there's a hundred plus components on a one bike that we're dealing with and and we may let me even you know somebody might look at it and say well it's your frame well um, there are sources on frames I mean you've got a carbon supplier you've got a uh, you know a, a, there, there's every there's you know a bunch of different sources for for everything that you're going at and so so meaning like you have to figure out how much carbon you need right and then how many right. bolts you need, right. every every piece of it. And so you might have a mold and, you know, how, how, how many frames can you get out of that mold? Um, or do we need a, uh, you know, do we need to get another mold? And, you know, and what are the cost implications on that? And, um, and really what, um, what usually happens is, is it's out of all these pieces, it's one supplier all of a sudden that comes back and says, yeah, we're delayed. Um, we've got an issue on this. And, you know, and it might be a stem or a handlebar or a fork or whatever. And you're saying, okay, what options do we have? Well, we've got to look at. Um, and so <clears throat> this business is, um, uh, what I love about it is um, it's all relationships. And I mean, you know, you, you work with the suppliers, you hope to have a, um, you have great relationships with them to where, you know, those type of things come up and, and um, they'll either give you a heads up uh, ahead of time or, or we're able to jump, you know, to another one quickly right. um, to be able to get, uh, get that so we can keep, you know, the things moving forward. Um, that's notorious in the industry, I think, with Everybody has that, but um, well, it's something good to think about for somebody who is selling anything that requires multiple components, right? Exactly. Like I, I had thought of that. I was when I asked you the question, I was thinking finished bikes, right? Like you say, yeah. you have this new model coming out that we're here to test riding. Like, how did you figure out? Okay, well, I think we'll sell, I don't know, <laughs> a thousand of them. Like, yeah. where does that number come from? Well, I'll tell you what. Right now, on that bike, is it's how many can we build? And that's the maximum number right now, and that and and we're talking over the next three months, and then it's how many can we build, you know, um, next year. Um, that's really where we're at on that right now. Um, this is, um, but we we try to also with everything. I mean, you you got to have. We look at it about three different ways, or uh, three hundred different ways, but you you'll you will forecast in. I mean, it's the hardest with a brand new product. A brand new segment that we've never been in, right. and you're you're really guessing, but um, uh, once you you make guesses, I mean, you know, in some respects we're just we're gamblers. Do you it. typically guess on the low end so that you end up with a out of stock situation as opposed to having too many and you you end yeah. up not moving them and you're stuck with this inventory? Yeah. that's no good. I mean, 
We have always been um, more conservative than we should be, quite frankly. But that means we always sell out of everything. Um, but Which I would think would be better than ending up with inventory you can't move or that you've right. got to blow out because that can end up damaging the brand when you're you're already right. low priced and now right. you're selling it for yeah, the low no, cost or something. We don't we don't do that. I mean, the brand comes first and foremost every time. I mean, I would rather sit on a product. Um, I'm. We thank goodness we really haven't had any of those situations. But there's there's a few odds and ends at the end of a cycle. You know, maybe it's the end of a full model run, and how can you forecast exactly right. down to nothing that you've sold the exact mix of bikes, you know, of sizes in those that you you, you need to have or colors? There's always going to be some leftover. Right. But how do you deal with that? What do you do with it? We don't. Do I mean, it? we will we'll hold it if we have to, and if for whatever reason, somebody always comes along and says, <laughs> man, I wish I had this or that, and you know, we've got it. Yeah, I guess they're good to have around for warranty parts too, though, sure. in some cases, right? Yeah. So what about like with this new product? Do you guys ever open up uh, pre-orders to help gauge demand? We, we haven't on this one. We did, um, uh, it, it's interesting because, you know, we'll, we'll follow kind of some trends and things like that, but we kind of, you know, we're all, we're all writers. We all know what we like, and um, you know we'll kind of at, come back and and um, and we'll circle up and we'll say, "All right, what what do we think on this?" I mean, and you know, on this particular product, we're really excited about it. Right. Um, it's um, we're we're pretty giddy about it, but you know, we always try to, like we said, we don't want to make um, a gamble where it, it it kills the company in any way. Right. And so, so this this new one is a pretty hot category right now. It's a yeah. long travel 29er mountain bike. And that seems to be where everything's going. Do you guys find yourself waiting to see just a little bit so that you kind of know what you should be making because it's a little bit safer bet? Or do you try and jump out ahead of a trend so no. you can be one of the first? No, on this one, we have, um, we've really, um, it's it's really been what we've wanted and what we've tried to, to, to ride. And so that's come into head angles, seat tube angles, chainstay lengths, all of those things. Yeah, sure. They're, the industry as a whole is kind of moving in that direction, but we have very much looked at each of those things ourselves and, um, and prototyped repeatedly on this one. I mean, when we say prototype, you know, you can't really prototype in carbon as easily because right. you, you're building expensive molds and then what? You, destroy it and then build it again so we'll prototype in aluminum over and over and over again and um, we get a pretty good idea and then and then you know we'll we'll open up the molds from there and and build it in but one of the biggest things that's helped us in this round uh, as opposed to the past is we've been able to 3d print a lot of these things so um, that's a that's been a really funny thing Um, a lot of problems will carry potentially can carry over into a mold that you don't realize i mean there are lots of different components that you know that will fit on bikes just slightly different and so with a 3d print we've been able to narrow that um, down and all of a sudden find oh wow well this particular crank we have an issue on or the chain line on this or you know or, or cable guides here we've got to adjust this just a little bit we didn't realize the routing is going to be different on this because of the way it's going into the derailleur or whatever you know there's there, right. there can be a, a hundred things but we've been able to eliminate a lot of those and that that helps us i guess 
um, mitigate those so we don't have to um, have troubles down the road. Yeah, top level though, do you feel like with your model that you need to be out in front of trends a little bit or is it safer to kind of like be, you know, a couple months or, you know, six months behind? Like wait for a category to be proven before you jump into it. Um, yes and no. I guess it depends on the category. If it was a uh, something, and, and again, we try to shy away from these, as I said earlier, if it's something that's out of our expertise, right. you know, we're kind of looking around a little bit more with, you know, wide eyes saying, what are, what are we doing here? And, and, um, and that's kind of why we tried to shy away from those. We know what we do well, and we try to focus on those. And, and so we have enough expertise and experience that we can push the boundaries on those. Um, I could see for sure if we're in an area we don't we just don't get that we'd be we'd be a little bit worried and we try to to kind of uh, look behind but from the beginning that's not how our business has been we've always tried to do it differently right my follow-up question to what two or three things keep you up at night is always is there a product or service you wish existed that would help with that so let's talk about forecasting because it seems to be a, a tough one like can you imagine anything that somebody could make or build or do that would help oh, with yeah. that like what? What would help solve that problem for you? There you go. 3D printing. But <laughs> for some reason, people think that 3D prints and bikes, for example, are, um, you know, somebody probably on this podcast has probably said, oh, they're making a 3D printed. Well, why can't I just ride that one? Well, no, the, the, the material that we're using is, is not right. carbon lung. So more of an actual on-demand manufacturing of the finished sure. product, not just. And we do that already. We've been able to do that substantially better. Um, because at the end of the day, you cannot predict as, uh, nobody can predict the future. We can guess at it, but we don't know what the hot component is going to be. We don't know what the, um, you know, the hot suspension or the drivetrain is. And so we've been able to narrow that down substantially by, um, yeah, we'll build our frames up, but we don't put a component on them until a customer will order, for example. Right. I mean, we do pre-build a lot of stuff that we, I mean, if we've got a big demand and we know that, you know, we'll, we'll be ordering in a lot of those components and we'll have to, we'll, we'll, we have to forecast for sure on those, but, um, that's a way that we are able to move quicker. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. That'll be, that'll be the day, right? When we have like <laughs> manufacturer on demand yeah. bikes. All right. For somebody who wants to launch a direct to consumer type business, what is maybe one or two pieces of parting advice that you would give to them to help them get off on the right foot? I would say don't look at it as any different than any other business. Um, you've got to be on your game. You've got to figure out what it is that is driving you and what you're trying to accomplish um, by starting your business. Is, um, I mean, what niche are you trying to fill? How are you going to compete? What's going to be the, the difference? And then go back and really have some self-introspection and say, okay, this is the steps that we're going to have to do. These are the things that we're going to have to really work out. Um, this is the thing that could be the biggest problem. And how are we going to address that? And how are we going to, um, if that happens? And, um, and then go to battle. That's really what it is, is, is getting out there and then believing in yourself because it's... Um, you know, I, I don't care what it is, whatever business you start, whatever business you do, 
you guys got to you got to dig in and hold on with 110%. So when you started, what were what was that big problem that you thought you might have to overcome? Oh. Well, so in the very beginning, I thought um I mean this is the very 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 beginning. Um I thought um I had to have investors that I had to um you know um spread the the um the risk and I you know wrote business plans and everything and surprisingly I had some people that were interested and wanted to invest in it and uh, for whatever reason it just didn't feel right and I didn't do it but um, then came the big um, wake-up call when I had my first half a million dollar um, bill come and I'm thinking (laughs) Holy cow! Is this um, is, is this, this going to work? <laughs> if not, what am I going to say to the family? You know, <laughs> so that that's a yeah that that'll keep you up at night. Yeah, okay. cash always does. You know, at the end of the day, you you know you've got to make sure you're paying the bills and you've got to make sure that you're 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 doing something that's fun. But you you want to have um, now we've got. We've got employees, we've got families, we've got customers that, um, I think that's one of the biggest jokes that people said, you know, to me in the beginning, they said, wow, isn't it awesome to be your own boss? And I look at it and I think, <laughs> I guess, but really, no, I have now a lot of bosses, you know, I'm, we're answering to customers and, and really employees and their families. I feel an extreme loyalty to all of those. I don't oh, want to let them down. You're responsible for them now. Right? Yeah. yeah, that's that's one of the toughest parts is especially if the cash flow is not that great is that right. you know you've got to pay them first. Yeah. Cuz they put their trust in you and that's yeah, a little scary sometimes. And you know, thank goodness we've never had that issue. That's awesome. So, I mean it goes back to I guess just the fundamentals, just trying to execute on the fundamentals. Yeah. Did you I, I know dragging on a little bit. Did you hire a bunch of people initially or were you trying to do like 10 million things yourself at once at we started so small and we just grew gradually and um yeah i mean so who, did, who designed the, the first bikes me okay who designed the first website me <laughs> <laughs> awesome. yeah i look at that and, and then all of a sudden i started thinking you know what i, I can do a lot of things I, I i love to learn and i love to to um you know, learn new things. But I mean, in this business, I mean, you're talking engineering, design, marketing, um, legal, accounting, finance. I mean, there's so many different things you get involved in. And, you know, it gets to a point where you start saying, man, that person does that way better than I do. Get him. Right. That person does, you know, and, and that person can certainly do that a lot better than me. And so I've tried to surround myself with people that can do stuff better than me. Yeah, that's often. I, I'm finding that to be one of the hardest things is not just finding the the people or the you know third party part, partners you know like an outside accountant or something like that that you trust, but is is letting go of that. And oh, it's the hardest part. Yeah, <laughs> it is. But, but then it's also like the biggest weight is lifted. Yeah. You know, when I've done it, I feel like oh man, now I have all this time that. Well, and to let them fail, to. quite frankly, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, certainly not in a in a way that would harm the business, but there's there's got to be ways to allow them to grow in whatever they're doing and their responsibilities. Yeah. You know, awesome man. Well, this we could dive deep on this subject, but thanks <laughs> a ton for your time and absolutely. Let's go Thank you. Beer.
I like about Chris's startup story is that he tried to go about launching his brand through traditional retailers, but quickly pivoted when it was apparent they weren't willing or able to do the things he wanted. When faced with that challenge, he simply found a solution and pushed forward. Sometimes it's easy to hear a no and be discouraged, or think that maybe your idea doesn't have merit. But if you believe in it, it's worth exploring all the ways you can go to market, then pick the best one for you. Maybe it's direct to consumer, maybe not. There's pros and cons to each. The other key piece of advice Chris offered is to focus on your product. Make it as good as you possibly can. There's no room in this hyper-connected, hyper-competitive world for a crappy product. No one needs it. So don't make Happy Meal prizes, trinkets, and trash. Don't make landfill fodder. Make something that solves a problem for people. Something that educates, surprises, delights. That's the real key to success. Then get your pricing and delivery figured out and you're on your way to a successful business. Speaking of making things, I'm really enjoying making these podcasts. If you're enjoying listening to them, could you tap on that player that's running right now and leave a quick rating and review before you move on to another episode? It only takes a second, but it really, really helps me grow and continue to get amazing guests for you. Here's hoping you're making something amazing. Until next time, keep building.